Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Hello and welcome back to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. I am Megan. And I am Lauren. And I'm never sure where we need to go after that sentence. We'll just get into it. I feel like we probably should have a better system by now, but (laughs) that's fine. We're just, we are who we are. Yes, you guys are here for it regardless. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being here for it uh, regardless. Yes, uh, speaking of people who are here regardless, we have um, one new patron. Oh, wow, a new patron. Yeah. Anna. Anna. Thank you, Anna. Yeah, thank you for supporting us. Definitely wanted to give you a shout out. We really appreciate you. We appreciate all the rest of our patrons who are continuing to support us. I know um, we're not producing as much as we were before. Um, So we just appreciate you guys continuing to support us as we are balancing life jobs, families, all of it. All that good stuff. Thanks. It means a lot. We're glad you're here. And, you know, thank you to all the people who can't be patrons but still listen. We appreciate you all. Yes, we do. We got some lovely messages from... was Cerest. Oh. Cerest got some nice messages from Cerest, um, really appreciate getting those kind of fun messages. Cerest also asked me how my Sims cult was going, <laughs> which was so funny because that was something I mentioned so offhand at one point. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, I guess people remember this. So just in case anybody else is wondering, the Sims cult is thriving. They're thriving. I do not know. I think there's like... I'm on, like, generation five or six, and I got, like, 40 Sims alive right now. Maybe 50. There's a lot of people. Um, there's a lot of names. Most recent baby born was Abimelech. Um, so so we're, do- we're uh, using creepy biblical name because I feel like in cults, a lot of times you do end up with some very interesting by modern standard names. And uh, we're just... I'm using the motherload cheat a lot, so they have a ridiculous amount of money that no one knows where it came from, which I think oh, is pretty fun. cult appropriate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, next next step I'm making is just going to go into creepy architecture. I'm thinking of redoing all the houses so they all just live underground. Ooh. So there's like a small house that just has a staircase into the basement where they all live. So, you know, we're working on, we're getting weird with it, but uh, it's, uh, it's a fun pastime. For those of you who haven't listened in a long time, The Sims Cult is basically where you make one Sim and then just try to make everyone have as many babies as possible and take up the entire town with all of the ancestors of a single Sim, make it one big family. And just uh, do whatever weird rules you like. So that's what I'm doing. And uh, it's going great. I don't play that often, but it's still quite fun. Well, we are proud of you. And we are Thank happy you. that it is thriving. Thank you for being proud of me for my strangest accomplishment. <laughs> I mean, that's what we're here for. Yeah. 
Y'all are the best. Um, yeah, and for those of you who don't remember, we are going down to once a month episodes during the summer. Towards the end of the summer, we'll be able to update you on the plan from there. Yes, we will. And boy, is it a plan. <laughs> is it a plan? <laughs> like how we're laughing. There's not that Ugh. much of a plan right now, guys. The plan is no. up in the air. We gotta, you know, it's been quite a year, so we just gotta figure figure it out. And by year, I mean year and a half. Everything since 2020. You guys know. We're just in 2020 part two right now. Well, and we have we have some tea for you guys. We're not ready to spill it yet, but... There's always. The tea is hot. As always. So. Yep. So. Lauren, would you like to tell our lovely fans what we're going to be talking about today? I would. Um, We're going to get into creepy historical treatments for mental illness. Yeah. Through the decades. Yeah, we're going to be diving kind of deep into uh, just quite frankly the shitty treatment of mentally ill people throughout time um, because a lot of the treatments we will be discussing are just straight up abuse um, Mm -hmm. which I think is good to acknowledge we have some high quality research based treatments right now and we Mm -hmm. also have thousands of years of history of just mistreating mentally ill people for the alleged treatment right yeah and i mean it's it's one of those things where there are absolutely you know mistakes made and poor decision making and sometimes it helped us figure things out um in terms of like how to treat people or how the brain works and stuff like that but sometimes it didn't it was just like completely unnecessary and unhelpful Mm -hmm. um so there's a healthy mix of both of those things um but you know this day and age research is so different we've talked about it with you guys before how there's ethical standards that we need to follow in um just certain like policing that happens now you know although these are spooky um they're interesting and mm-hmm. it's interesting people really believed that these worked yeah um and also just um massive trigger warning up top um for abuse of mentally ill people uh physical abuse is a large one that Mm -hmm. we will talk about trigger trigger warning for abuse all right so let's let's hop in so one person i wanted to kind of bring to attention is someone called Claudius Galen. Um, And this fellow was known for bleeding, vomiting, and purging people. Mm. Um, And so we're going to get into why (laughs) he was doing that. Um, So Galen was a physician. Um, He was also a writer, philosopher, and um, he became the most famous doctor in the Roman Empire. And his theories dominated European medicine for about 1,500 years. So he was the guy for a hot minute. Um, He was born and worked in modern-day Turkey. It was called something else back then. I can't remember. But he became a physician to Marcus Aurelius. 
and would later serve the same role to Aurelius's successors. So he, you know, stuck by that family and helped them out. Um, so Galen's understanding of anatomy and medicine was influenced by the theory of humorism. I love the theory of humorism. It's like one of those that I definitely remember reading about a lot <laughs> when I was younger, and it's it's fascinating. It's real weird. <laughs> it's really weird. Um, so if you don't know what humorism is, um, it's the theory of the four humors. So black bile, yellow bile, blood, and phlegm. So looking at people's like excrement, basically. Um, and it was advanced by ancient Greek physicians. Um, so we know Hippocrates, mm -hmm. um, for example. And I just like to point out, we laugh at this stuff now. I genuinely believe most doctors at the time were really doing the best with the information mm -hmm. they had, obviously, with what we know now. Very different, but yeah, all that yeah. humors get out of alignment and it really just fucks you up. Apparently. And I Apparently. mean, nowadays, like, I'm I'm sure to see someone's, like blood being like a weird color like a hematologist or something would be like oh yeah like something is off like not exactly like you know related to the four humors but maybe just like physically so yeah. I, I think that we probably did take some things and learn some things from this um but not in the way it was intended uh but it's interesting because these views dominated Western medical science for more than 1,300 years. Mm -hmm. So people really supported this belief system. Um, so Galen promoted this theory and the typology of human temperaments. So in his view, an imbalance of each humor corresponded with human, uh, like a particular human temperament. So blood, sanguine, black, bile, was melancholic, uh, yellow bile was choleric, and phlegm phlegmatic. <laughs> so, yep. individuals with sanguine temperaments are extroverted and social. Choleric people have energy, passion, and charisma. Melancholics are creative, kind, and considerate, and phlegmatic temperaments are characterized by dependability, kindness, and affection. Those are all like weirdly positive descriptions. I know. For so personality at first it doesn't types. sound like it would be. Like you think yeah. of like melancholic and you're like, okay, so like depression. <laughs> like, you know. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so many theorists, just like Galen, believe that sickness came from an imbalance um, of the humors in the body. And the best way to treat an imbalance was by bleeding, enemas, and vomiting. So getting it all out of there there's you have too much of something so you have to uh get it out somehow yep and so. i mean i guess from a theoretical standpoint you do get sick from having too much or too little of something in your system it's just not humors so i think the uh philosophical basement basis of you know mm -hmm. imbalance making you sick is not completely inaccurate it's just man uh, yeah. bleeding enemas and vomiting are not always the treatment. I think exactly. Like you sometimes can't really, vomiting like, is the treatment, but not always. Right, for certain things, right? But like yeah. you can't like 
vomit out anxiety. <laughs> like, it doesn't, you know, or just, like, certain temperaments. It's just, it's silly. But Although it's not uncommon to vomit during panic attacks. I'll true. just throw that out. That is a real thing. If you've ever done that, that's not that weird. But you're not vomiting your anxiety out. Your body's just panicking to the point where it wants to get everything out so you can fight effectively. And that's it. Yeah. That's the tea. Is. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, it, you know, for example, purgatives or things that make you throw up um, were made out of extremely poisonous root of black hellebore, um, which I thought was interesting, just, like, how truly, like, poisonous this stuff was that they were using. I mean, at the time, obviously, they you know, thought it was extremely important to make people do this. Um, but it's like, oh, you could have also, like, totally killed someone. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, so that Probably did. Probably did. Probably killed quite a lot of people doing this. Uh-huh. Um, bloodletting was definitely a treatment for a lot of things for quite a long time. Um, sure, lots of people died from it. Yeah. Not exactly probably documented, but we can assume. Right. Some shit happened. Um, so yeah, so that's a little bit about why people were doing that back mm -hmm. then, back in the day. Um, another one that I found and wanted to share with you guys is drug-induced nightmares. Because who doesn't love that? Woo! That'll help you with your trauma and anxiety, totally. Um, so, the ancient Egyptians, and afterwards the Greeks, had an interesting idea for how to soothe a disordered mind. Give it lots of drugs, put it in a labyrinth, and see what nightmares resulted. There's just something about the labyrinth that just really gets me where it's just, and also I mean the concept of a disordered mind I feel like that could go for like literally anything and they're like mm -hmm. let's just give you as many drugs as possible and just throw you in a maze it's like, what? Like, that'll that'll fix something that yeah, sounds I mean, terrifying even like right now like just like the premise of like we're gonna put you in a labyrinth like I have anxiety thinking about it <laughs> like it like, I'm, I don't, you know, I'm not struggling with anything right now, so it's just, like, it's mind-boggling. But, you know, you have to have empathy for, like, these people who are being put through that, because if you think about it, like, if you really are struggling, like, with mental illness, and you're being put in, like, a very terrifying situation where you're not totally connected with what's real and what's not, um, that's really brutal. Mm -hmm. So we can... <laughs> Just to highlight that for a second. I would like to point out that there is uh, building evidence that certain psychedelic substances can actually be very effective treatments for mm -hmm. mental illness. So again, not entirely wrong. Um, however, please consider seeing a professional that utilizes drugs. Don't just do a lot of drugs and go to your local corn maze in the fall. That's yep. probably going to scare a bunch of children and... Uh, set and setting are important. I don't think yep. just throwing someone in a labyrinth is quite the best way nope. to do it. Like you said, I think having like a trained professional there to kind of help walk you through that experience 
Um, and also just the idea of like consent, like consenting to a treatment is like mm-hmm. a big part of it. And I don't think consent forms um, were around during the Egyptian times. <laughs> I highly doubt there was a friendly doctor going up and just being like, we intend on doing this to uh, soothe your disordered mind. Are you in full agreement? I don't think informed consent was a relevant factor. <laughs> um, yeah, so so that's uh, what they did. Um, mm-hmm. But this practice was known as incubation. So that's what they used to call it back then. Sweet. Um, oftentimes the practice would happen in a temple and usually it involved opium. So real exciting uh the greeks would confine the practice to temples devoted to i'm gonna butcher this but asclepios Mm. um which was the god of healing which is like nice in theory that they chose like a god to like help somebody um but egyptian mentally ill people were drugged so heavily they were supposed to enter the realm of the dead Ah. (laughs) it's not funny it's just like it's really brutal I'm, like, uncomfortable. That's why I'm laughing. Um, so they were drugged so heavily they were supposed to enter the realm of the dead, where they would be held and cured by the goddess Isis, who was supposed to sing to them. So that's that's neat and intense. I mean, that's nice. I think a goddess holding you and singing to you gently would actually be quite a lovely experience. Um, but I don't know about so the entering the realm of the you- dead. <laughs> So many drugs that you entered the realm of the dead, though. I have to be some real good singing, I guess. Yeah, like, please hold me at that point. Thank you. I promise to hold you should you ever enter the realm of the dead. Do you do excessive drug use? I will sing to you. Pinky promise. Okay. Um, the Greeks believed in treating their mentally ill, um, by being pampered with baths and drinks, which sounds great. Love that part. That's off to a good start. That's treat yourself. That's self-care. Yeah. Um, then drugged and led into a labyrinth where they'd start to have visions induced by their drugged state, which priests would interpret. Okay. So at least with the Greeks, it sounds like someone was kind of there being like, hey, let me help you, like, make sense of this drug-induced yeah. labyrinth day. Again, you need a sitter, guys. Don't... Don't be doing this on your own in a need maze. need someone to assist you. Agreed. So, yeah. So, that's a little bit about drug-induced nightmares. Um, and again, you know, we want to respect other people's, you know, beliefs and culture and all of that. Um, again, it just kind of, like, boils down to this isn't, like, a practice anymore. We've learned from this. Um, and consent is hugely important. (laughs) So. Yes. All right. Another one that I found very strange. Um, also, as I was putting this together, I was having, like, flashbacks. I don't know if you remember this, Megan. But I think this was in grad school, and you had come over to my apartment, and we found a show called Weird or What, where it was a <laughs> guy oh just my. talking about, like, weird things and be like, is that weird or what? Okay. Yes. 
I do, I don't remember much about it other than the fact that we did watch at least seven hours of Weird or What during yep. this sleepover we had. It was a great day. It that was, was really phenomenal. Day. We were about it. That was a lot of fun. But yeah, where it's like, and it was just every episode they just talk about something really weird and they just be like, is that weird? Or what? And I'm like, you just spent an hour telling us why it was weird, dude. What? Like, it's not a question. Like, we agree with you. This is super weird. We are on board, sir. Oh my gosh. So I'm just gonna ask you that as we go through each of these. Perfect. <laughs> okay. So th- the next one is insulin coma therapy. Mm. All right, so I'll get ready for this one. So um, this was popular in the 1940s and 1950s, and it was introduced in actually 1927 by Austrian-American psychiatrist Manfred Sickle. So in 1927, I think it's Sickle or Sickle, um, <laughs> was recently qualified as a doctor in Vienna and was working in a psychiatric clinic in Berlin. Um, so he began to use low, so subcoma doses of insulin to treat drug addicts and psychopaths. And after one of the patients experienced improved mental clarity, so again, one, <laughs> um, after slipped into an accidental coma, Seigel reasoned that the treatment might work for the mentally ill, um, which is a huge jump, but... Yep whatever um so he returned to vienna and he started treating schizophrenic patients with larger doses of insulin in order to deliberately produce a coma and sometimes convulsions um so typically what would happen is injections were administered six days a week for about two months so really intense um sorry my husband's talking very loudly (laughs) It's okay. Um, so, okay, so the injections were administered six days a week for about two months. Um, but after the insulin injection, patients would experience various symptoms of decreased blood glucose, yeah. flushing. I don't know what this means. Pallor? Paler? Pallor is like, um, just like super pale skin. Oh, okay. So got it. Okay. Uh, perspiration, salivation, drowsiness, or restlessness. Um, and sometimes coma. So if the dose was high enough, um, that's what would follow. Each coma was set up to an hour, uh, said to last up to an hour, and be terminated by intravenous glucose or nasogastric tubes. Mm-hmm. Seizures sometimes occurred before or during the coma, Many would be tossing, turning, rolling, moaning, twitching, spasming, or thrashing around. Um, and so it's see, just I, interesting. <laughs> it is interesting, and I think the tricky thing is, again, in so many of these, like, historical treatments, there might be a grain of truth, because we know electroconvulsive therapy, now that it's done under sedation with very controlled doses, can actually be an effective treatment for certain mood disorders, um, putting someone into a seizure. However, just giving someone so much insulin that they go into a coma and then have some seizures is not a well-controlled way to get those results. So it, it's it's always tricky because, like, sometimes seizures 
can be beneficial, sometimes they're not beneficial. Exactly. Exactly. Nobody nobody wants to be put through a seizure if they don't have to. Right. right. So, um, yeah, just very interesting. And again, like, kind of like what I highlighted before, it, it was just kind of nuts that he saw some sort of, like, improvement with one person, and it led him to believe that this was, like, the treatment for a bunch of people with a very mm-hmm. specific disorder. Um, not sure how he got there. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Was that weird? Or what? <laughs> or what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Get ready for this one. We're just gonna real quick change the name of the podcast. To weird or what? Psychology to weird or what? It's just plagiarism. It's just plagiarism. I need to try to find that show now. I know. I'm like, it has to be on like Netflix or something. <laughs> Maybe not because it was so obscure. I have no idea. I mean, Maybe not on Netflix, but it might be on one of those, like, the weird free streaming channels. Yes. It's gotta be somewhere. We're gonna find it. We'll find it. We'll find it. We'll update you guys. Uh, So get ready for this one. This one I happened to just stumble upon. This one, Uh, I saw it too, and I was like, I don't know if I'm gonna do that one. And then I looked at the spreadsheet and you did it, and I was like, that's how it was meant to be. And it is. It and is. so it is. So, okay. So, there was a woman in 1628, and she was known as the brainchild of the man treating her. Um, and the man treating her was Daniel Oxenbridge. So, he was a prominent doctor of the period who'd been educated at Oxford and was a fellow of the College of Physicians. So, very well respected. However, among a hugely varied bunch of remedies administered simultaneously to this woman um, who was suffering from mental illness, he would um, use the method of bleeding her forehead, giving her fresh cider, which sounds nice. That part sounds Um, fine, yeah. Yeah, that part's okay. Shaving her head, which, strange, but alright, and dosing her with laudanum. Mm -hmm. Um, a preparation for opium but he also gave her a special flourish every evening he would put either lamb or pigeon lungs on her head so what a choice I was baffled when I read that and I was like there has to be like an answer of why he felt like that was something that he needed to do And so the closest thing I could find, and I really, like, spent a while, like, looking into this, was, um, I guess at the time, British and French doctors tried transfusing sheep's blood and, like, lamb's blood into humans because they were hoping that the life force of a docile creature might tame mad possession, or passions. Hmm. So... That's as close as I can get to understanding why that was being done. I'm guessing it's some, like, form of that. But again, like, it's very hard to find. (laughs) Like, I don't understand why. It was, like, a very specific thing, so I'm sure he had a very specific reason. But it's just the information isn't out there. 
Right? That is the tough thing about looking into the history of certain things, is, like, things just were not written down, so there probably was a clear-cut reason. We're just not always going to be able to find it. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. So, if you want to spend time researching that, you know, by all means, very interested. Closest I could get was in a book I found called An Underground Education by Richard Zacks. Um, and uh, he brought up the British and French doctors um, trying to use the docile life force. Mm-hmm. So perhaps that could be the reason. Perhaps. Okay. Megan, right. I know you got some weirder what's. I do, I do. Is this weird or what? <laughs> uh, so I'm going to be t- sorry I'm talking so much today, guys. I. I really, I, I went for it um, in terms of my research. I had a lot of fun doing this. So we're just going to start off with uh, trephination. Lauren, have you ever heard of trephination before? I surely have. You have. So lovely. Trephination is a treatment consisting of just drilling a hole into your skull. What a lovely thing. Um... So this is dangerous, if you guys did not know that, due, due to a high risk of infection and blood loss. Typically, you don't want your brain exposed. Your brain should really be... It needs to be right where it is. So, with trephination, it was done for headaches or tumors, but also to treat mental illness or demonic possession. Um... Hippocrates, um, you know, in ancient Greece, Hippocrates dealt exclusively with head injuries in one of his works. Five types of head wounds were described, and trephination is recommended for all but one of them. The objective of trephination was to allow blood to drain from the skull. According to Hippocrates, stagnant blood was bad, as it could decay and turn into pus, so it was meant to allow the brain from the injured part to flow out before it turned bad. Um... Galen, who Lauren mentioned, also was big into trephination for relieving pressure. Um, In Europe, it was used as a treatment for epilepsy and mental illness. And um, it was not performed solely for medical reasons. So it was sometimes done for ritual purposes. In different, you know, places, there were multiple different types of trephinations done. And again, because I like to put the... um, the my the grain of truth here um, can actually be helpful for brain injuries nowadays. Um, if you get into an accident and you have too much intracranial pressure, they might choose to remove part of your skull. However, they do yeah. put it back. They they don't just leave the hole there. They do uh, wait until everything is good, and then they will reattach that little piece of your skull for you. Yeah, I've, I've heard um, of that. I mean, like, recently. Like, I heard of, like, a person um, who had a stroke, I think, and there was, like, excess, like, blood that was mm-hmm. just, like, causing a lot of pressure. So they, they drilled a hole, basically, to, like, relieve the pressure, and then, yeah. you know, they fix it. They put it back. Yeah, they they still will absolutely do that to relieve pressure because again, there is truth that if you have too much pressure, uh, your brain really doesn't have that much room to swell because your skull, so it can cause a lot of damage. So they absolutely will still do that. They just uh, put it back. 
That's kind of the main difference. In historical trephination, they just drilled holes. Um, now they drill tiny holes and use a saw to cut a piece out. Um, which, according to the research I did, they keep in a freezer or in a pouch that's attached to your body. Didn't look more into that because I don't really necessarily want to know what kind of skull pouch they attach to your body to hold your skull. Skull pouch. <laughs> um, I'm sure, again, that's at least what the website said about it. I just am a bit squeamish when it comes to certain medical things, so I've decided to not read that. Um, so now, we're going to talk about one of that one, I feel like, is kind of related to this next one. So I wanted to put them together. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about lobotomies. Oh, this is a juicy one. This is. So, uh, lobotomies are really interesting because we know a lot more now looking back on it, but the lobotomy actually won a Nobel Prize in medicine in 1949. So this was considered really groundbreaking. It was invented by a neurologist, Antonio Egas Moniz, in 1935 in Portugal. Uh, he called it a leucotomy. Um, it was the, to treat mental illness, um, which again is drilling holes to access the brain, and he received the Nobel Prize. And then in 1936, psychiatrist Walter Freeman performed the first U.S. prefrontal lobotomy on a Kansas housewife. He changed the name to lobotomy. Now, a lot of you have probably heard of Walter Freeman because he is very controversial. He believed that an overload of emotions led to mental illness and that cutting certain nerves in the brain could eliminate excess emotion and stabilize your personality. He wanted to... So in the original leucotomy, which um, was invented in 1935, the holes were drilled into the skull to access the brain and kind of go in for specific nerves to sever. Uh, Freeman, however, wanted to do things more efficiently, so he decided and invented the 10-minute transorbital lobotomy. Oh, God. Better known as the ice kick lobotomy. The worst. Ah, uh, so. Again, graphic treatment. Graphic uh, war trigger warning here. Uh, so basically, this was done by inserting an ice pick into your transorbital eye, so your eye socket, basically, and just putting it right into your brain. Uh, he did the first ice pick lobotomy on January 17th, 1946. He would go on to perform 2,500 lobotomies. He was a showman. He once performed 25 in one day, and he also liked to put ice picks in both eyes simultaneously. Crazy. <clears throat> yeah, so he, uh, those, this is a direct quote, those who watched the procedure described it, a patient would be rendered unconscious by a lecture sock, Freeman would then take an ice pick-like instrument, insert it above the patient's eyeball through the orbit of the eye into the frontal lobes, moving the instrument back and forth, then he would do the same thing on the other side of the face. So again, even though the theoretical premise was that by going with specific you know nerves to help this is not what freeman was doing freeman was basically putting an ice pick into your brain and just swirling it around and just destroying 
brain tissue. Okay. Just random movements. Um, and so if you kind of look at some of the ways, um, you know, it was for mental illness, um, but that was kind of the original one. Freeman really liked to use it on anyone who wanted one or wanted a family member to get one. He gave people a bodies for migraines, depression, postpartum depression, behavioral problems, mild retardation, or anything he fancied would get him a chance to stick an ice pick into someone's brain. That's a direct quote from the Psych Central article, and I just Fine. liked it, so I threw it in there. Um, there was one of the youngest patients was a 12-year-old boy named Howard Dully. Howard Dully wrote the book My Lobotomy about his experience. It's good. I highly recommend it. I read it a couple years ago. Um, a direct quote from him. If you saw me, you'd never know I had a lobotomy. The only thing you'd notice is that I'm very tall and weigh about 350 pounds. But I've always felt different. Wondered if something's missing from my soul. I have no memory of the operation and have never had the courage to ask my family about it. Um, so you might be wondering... Why, oh, why would a 12-year-old boy need a lobotomy? And the answer is, his stepmother, Lou, said he was defiant, daydreamed, and even objected to going to bed. Okay. So, yeah, that was why he got a lobotomy. Um, he was basically, by... All accounts pretty normal. Um, according to his father, the stepmother took her steps on to several doctors who all said there was nothing wrong with him and he was a normal boy, and then Freeman agreed to do a lobotomy. Twelve-year-old uh, boys being defiant, daydreaming, and occasionally objecting to going to bed is pretty typical behavior for being twelve. That sounds like a twelve-year-old yep, to me. That sounds on par with <laughs> everything I've ever sleep. seen. They hate Twelve-year-olds hate sleep so much. Um, so yeah, typical boy. Some of the side effects that I found really interesting is people would describe childlike behavior from people after lobotomies, which makes sense if you have a large amount of brain damage, your behavior will modify. Weirdly enough, it seems like Freeman was pretty insistent that, um... It wasn't brain damage causing the childlike behavior, that the childlike behavior was a regression showing that it worked and they would eventually begin to act adult-like again. Uh, that is not true. There was no record. Pretty much everyone stayed because they were changing their behavior because they had severe brain damage. So, uh, can also cause death. People did definitely die from lobotomies. And, um... He, so in 1967, Freeman performed his last lobotomy before being banned from operating. Uh, Lauren, have you ever heard why he was finally banned from operating? No, I haven't. He had a patient who he completed three lobotomies on. And after the third one, she developed a brain hemorrhage and passed away. That'll do it. That'll not get you the best reputation. Yeah. Um, it looks like in the United States, the last lobotomy was done, different sources say somewhere between the 70s or 80s, so it looks like people may have continued to do them after Freeman. Uh, the United States performed more lobotomies than any other country. 
Um, somewhere between 40,000 and 50,000 lobotomies. Um, one of the most famous one was Rosemary Kennedy, who was one of the rebellious Kennedys, uh, was given a lobotomy. And look that one up. I'm not going to explain the whole thing, but it is interesting. Um, and something that I find really interesting, um, you know, I think Americans occasionally misbelieve that we're the greatest country on the face of the earth. Um, you know, but as early as the 1950s, Germany and Japan had outlawed lobotomies. The Soviet Union prohibited lobotomies in 1950, stating that it was contrary to the principles of humanity. I would agree. That sounds appropriate. I would also agree. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically, Germany, Japan, and the Soviet Union all agreed in the early 50s that this was a terrible idea, and the United States just kept going. So... This is a big one. Uh, as a country, we really messed this one up. Lobotomies do not um, seem to help whatsoever. And these really were just unregulated and done for unethical purposes. And there was a significant push to actually remove the Nobel Prize from Antonio mm. Moniz. Was because, it ever removed or no? I don't know. Okay. I saw there was a push for it. I did not figure out what to go to. Okay. But the interesting thing is that one of the big reasons for the push for lobotomies is that they were considered a more humane option than putting people in asylums. That's interesting. And asylums were supposed to be more humane than previous treatment. Uh, so now, I'm going to tell you, I found something on list first that was actually pretty cool because it just listed accounts of torture in the insane asylums. I'm using insane asylums because that's what they were actually called at the time. Uh, between the 1800s and 1900s. So I'm going to read some examples from you. All of these are from newspaper articles that were published in the 18 or 1900s and um, or court records. So these are all kind of first sources of these actual reports. So in 1874, the Carbon Advocate, a newspaper from Pennsylvania, reported that the insane poor were severely mistreated in certain county almshouses. Uh, their report stated there were no bathrooms. And people who were deemed insane were kept in wooden cages. In one, there was a man, uh, he was described as quiet, who did not have any violent outbursts. He was locked up in a cage for 18 months with straw on the floor, most likely for bedding. And they said they had little to no clothing and most were too weak to move, having been kept in the cage for so long. Okay. So, not humane at all not humane so we just got people in cages um okay so now in 1903 this is from the omaha daily bee this is about the lakeland insane asylum in kentucky so an investigation was underway and patients were testifying of the abuse some of the claims were that most people said they were too scared to reveal everything uh fearing that they would be hurt after their testimony 
which makes sense. A lot of these people, you know, they were not allowed to leave the asylums once they were there. So, you know, being pretty scared of retaliation does make sense. Others revealed that they were strangled, beaten with socks containing potatoes, and forced to take cold showers as punishment. One article says the patients were held while cold water was allowed to drip on them. So there's that. Um, nice. They used hydrotherapy, which is both hot and cold water, to change behavior patterns. It was very popular in the early 1900s. They'd spray showers of cold water, ranging from 48 degrees Fahrenheit to 70 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, was a treatment for manic depressive psychoses. So interesting. I don't. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Like this is. And it's interesting that, like, some people said this was humane. Obviously, asylums were, in reality, just very abusive facilities. Um, in 1886, another newspaper article, uh, this one doesn't specify where it, where the woman was staying. There was a ner- woman suffering from nervous excitement till she went to the state insane asylum. I don't, I feel like that's normal i don't okay nervous excitement again some of these phrases are like no one really knows what it even means um while she was in the care of the state asylum she was tripped by she was intentionally tripped and injured her leg um she went to lie on her bed to recover from her injury not knowing that that was against the rules so she injured her leg and was not supposed to lie down she went anyways um So basically, because she unknowingly broke the rules after getting injured, she was placed in a chair and bound so tightly she could not move. The strap went around the waist, was so tight it stopped circulation. She was strapped from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. when she was unbound. Her limb that was injured was twice its normal size due to swelling. Um, She was also gagged and had her hair pulled out by an attempt. Alrighty. So again, and this is all the 1800s and 1900s, so this is not that long ago that all of this was happening. I like to think we, you know, people think that we've made it such a long way. And in a lot of ways we have, but the severely abusive treatment was still recent. And I think the thing that, like, none of this is treatment. Right. As much as people said asylums were about treatment, they this is not what treatment looks like no. this was abusing mentally ill and disabled people right just, just call it people what it is. not knowing what they're doing and like housing people with mental illness and not treating them with respect mm-hmm. uh so this next one is the topeka asylum for the insane in 1903 um was a water cure. When a patient refused to obey the orders given by Miss Houston, the attendants were ordered to throw a sheet over her head, draw her to the floor. They held her down. They poured water out of a pan onto her face. It was poured quickly, and it continued until the patient agreed to obey orders. Um, another one. This is Boston, 1883. A woman was in a dirty cell in the attic. She was without clothing and almost starved. The assistant said she was violently insane and would tear the clothes. She had one meal a daily, uh, 
One Meal Daily, the article from 1883 says, carried to her by an idiotic girl who had taken care of the woman. Um, so typically that would mean a woman with a cognitive disability. Jeez. I know, I know. It's like the old verbiage. Like, I hate saying it, but I'm also not going to change what the art direct quotes from articles. Um, so basically another patient was taking care of her. She watched and found the girl threw the food away, came back with an empty plate telling the woman had eaten all the food. So she was just being starved. And then this is in 1901, a woman came forward about her husband's treatment in Bellevue Hospital in 1898. She believed her husband had died due to abuse and treatment at the asylum. In one instance, she saw him in a straitjacket made to trot up and down a corridor in the Bellevue Insane Pavilion while an attendant flogged him with a long strap tipped with metal. Uh, Her husband was taken to the Manhattan State Hospital, treated for several fractured ribs, um, and then after being returned to the asylum, another year and a half later, he passed away. So, you know, supposedly educated doctors, like, allegedly thought that flogging someone in restraints would help mental illness. And I think this is the tricky thing, is, like, we don't know how much of this is doctors who genuinely believed they Mm -hmm. were helping versus people who had a psychological predisposition towards violence who went into that position of power and... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's the horrifying treatment in insane asylums. Uh, Sorry to bring it down. Everybody, that was rough. Uh, This next part is a bit funnier. Um, So, lastly today, I'm just going to walk you through the history of one of my favorite old-timey mental illnesses, female hysteria. Oh, boy. Always a joy. Always a joy. Um, again, when I'm talking about old sources, I'm just going to use the language that was typically used at the time. Uh, female hysteria was a mental illness, allegedly, that for a long time was considered to only affect women because it was caused by the uterus wandering around the body. <laughs> As it does. As it allegedly does. Um, Uh, I I don't know anyone who has a uterus that is prone to wander. A uterus can absolutely prolapse where it comes out, in which case you need very quick surgery to manage that. Um, Doesn't just wander, though. Really, really kind of stays in its assigned seat for the most part, unless something's seriously wrong. So, yeah, this one's fascinating because... The diagnosis of female hysteria really encompassed everything. Like, anything and everything could be a symptom of hysteria. Right. Uh, Like, you just had to basically be, like, a woman, and then (laughs) you're hysterical. Pretty much. Uh, So, symptoms were considered nervousness, hallucinations, emotional outbursts, urges of the sexual variety... Um, seizures were another one. Any medical symptoms could be. And my personal favorite is um, just some of the articles I read listed uh, being prone to cause trouble. All right. There you have it. 
Uh, so basically, literally anything, it could be under mental illness, could be physical illness, right? With some of the physical symptoms, like epilepsy, they could just have epilepsy. Like, just had a seizure disorder. Uh, so it could be literally anything. Um, so I'm going to talk a bit about the history, and I'm going to uh, really dive deep into kind of busting some of the most common myths about the treatment of uh, female hysteria. But a lot of the history stuff, I want to shout out this awesome article that I found called Women in Hysteria in the History of Mental Health cool. by Cecilia Tasca, Mariangela Rapetti, Mauro Giovanni Carta, and Bianca Fada. Um, so this really just went through the history um, and was one of the greatest compilations. So I'm going to walk you through some of the history of female hysteria. We're going to start in ancient Egypt. Uh, where traditional symptoms of hysteria were tonic-clonic seizures, the sense of suffocation, and imminent death. Um, how they treated, and this is so interesting, so they treated hysteria by attempting to get the uterus back in the correct position. So if they thought that the uterus had moved upwards... Uh-huh they would put malodorous and acrid substances near the woman's mouth and nostrils while they would put nice scented things near her vagina because oh. they believed that the uterus would move away from bad smells and towards nice smells. Okay. So that's what they would do. And if the uterus had lowered, they would place the acrid and smelly substances near the vagina and the perfumed ones near the mouth and nostrils in the hopes that it would just go. Um, now, if you go to ancient Greece, Plato, Aristotle, and Hippocrates all agreed that the uterus is sad and unfortunate when it doesn't join with the male and does not give rise to a new birth. So hysteria, they believed, was caused by your uterus being sad. Okay. <laughs> because apparently, if you're not pregnant, your uterus is sad. Very and sad. it causes problems. And it only so. likes good smelling things. So the uterus likes good smelling things joining with the male. Um, which is a weird way weird way of putting it. Because uh, the uterus does not join with the male. That's just not that part That's of the body. That's how sex works. <laughs> That's just not how... Not how sex works, but all right, whatever. Apparently they think things are going into the actual uterus. Uh, whole nother thing. Nonetheless, uterus, sad. So, um, Hippocrates was the first person to actually use the term hysteria, and he did believe that it lied in the movement of the uterus. He stated that hysteria, which was different than epilepsy, he said that the compulsive movements of epilepsy were caused by the brain. Hysteria was caused by movements of the uterus in the body. So he said he the idea of a restless and migratory uterus caused by the indisposition as poison stagnant humors due to an inadequate sexual life. Um, so you see, a woman's body is physiologically cold and wet, hence prone to putrefaction of the humors, uh, men's bodies are dry and warm. Why so, Why did they believe that? It, it, we don't know. Okay, okay. 
did not go that far into this. So the uterus is prone to get sick if it is deprived from the benefits arising from sex and procreation, which widening a woman's canals promotes the cleansing of the body. So, especially in virgins, widows, single or sterile women, the bad uterus is unsatisfied. It produces toxic fumes, but takes to wandering around the body, causing anxiety, sense of suffocation, tremors, and convulsions, and paralysis. He suggests that widows and unmarried women should get married. Okay. So the cure is marriage, everyone. And mm, Just so you know. Uh, and having a satisfactory sexual life within the bounds of marriage. I'm widening your canal. <laughs> your canals need to be widened. Uh, it says when the disease is recognized, effective women are advised not only to partake in sexual activity, but to cure themselves, again, with the acrid or fragrant fumigation of the face and genitals to push the uterus back to its natural place inside the body. Uh, so Hippocrates built on the uterus is in the wrong place by adding that the uterus is, again, sad from lack of sexual activity and procreation. Therefore, you must get married, have heterosexual sex, procreate, and fumigate your mouth and genitals to keep your uterus in the correct place which is this one just makes me it gets so specific which i do kind of love so now we're moving up in history we got an english physician thomas sydenham from uh he published a treatise on hysteria postulary dissertation on the hysterical affections um which refers back to natural history, describing an enormous range of manifestations and recognizing that hysterical symptoms may simulate organic diseases. The author is fluctuating between a somatic and psychological explanation. So really going through, is it actually, you know, a medical condition or is it a psychological condition? And they're starting to bring in some questions. Um, so that, that, that was published in 1680. Uh, then a German physician, Franz Anton Mesmer, found in suggestion a method of treatment for his patients suffering from hysteria in group and individual treatments. He identified a new body fluid called animal magnetism, and his method became famous as uh, mesmerism, where he thought that the magnetic action of the hands on diseased parts of the body would treat the patient interacting with the fluid within the body. So, you know. You know. You Thanks. know. You know how it be. Um, so. <laughs> We're going to get into... Uh, I hope everyone's ready for it. We're going to talk about the Victorian age and our main man, Freud. What up, Freud? So, again, due to some of these things, during the Victorian age, women carried a bottle of smelling salts in their handbag, they were inclined to swoon when their emotions were aroused, and it was believed that a wandering room disliked pungent odor and would return in place, allowing the woman to recover her consciousness. Um, really just showing that Hippocrates, his, uh, his stuff really held on, because we're already in the Victorian time, they're still going with this. So now, really interesting, the father of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud, um, he was the first person to assert that male hysteria 
was also a thing. So Freud was the first person to say this was not exclusively a female problem, which is kind of baffling because Freud thought that most things were related to females. Um, he did. And he cured did. by so, cocaine. Cured by cocaine. Um, he wrote in 1897, after a period of good humor, I now have a crisis of unhappiness. The chief patient I am worried about today is myself. My little hysteria, which was much enhanced by work, took a step forward. Um, so along with Joseph Brewer, he published his studies on hysteria. So the key concepts of psychoanalytical theory with the influence of childhood sexual fantasies and the different ways of thinking in the unconscious mind had not been formulated, but they're already kind of there in this text. With the cases presented, we find the hysteria of young Katerina, who suffers global hysteria, um, but it does not refer to the Oedipus complex, which emerges through the study of male hysteria, which was developed later. Um, so... Until Freud, it was believed that hysteria was the consequence of the lack of conception and motherhood. Freud believed that, a hysteri that hysteria was caused by lack of libidinal evolution, and the failure of conception is, not the, resu is the result, not the cause of disease. So he basically mm. thought that you couldn't conceive because you were hysterical, not that you were hysterical because you hadn't conceived. So, interesting. Um, basically said a hysterical person is unable to live a mature relationship. Furthermore, another important point of the historical point of view, Freud emphasized the concept of secondary advantage. Um, he said, psychoanalyst, the hysterical symptom is the expression of the impossibility of the fulfillment of the sexual drive because of the Oedipal complex. The symptom is thus a primary benefit and allows the discharge of the urge, libidinal energy linked to sexual desire, has the side benefit of allowing the patient to manipulate the environment to serve his needs. However, is it a, it is a disease of women. It is a vision of illness linked to the historically determined to, to conceive role of woman. The woman has no power but handling, trying to use the other subtle ways to achieve it. It's an evolutionary, it's still an evolution to the concept of a possessed woman. So he like kind of brought it forward, but not all the way. Still thought it was heavily connected to women's roles at the time, being unable to conceive and essentially being unable to actually act on sexual urges that you have would cause hysteria. Interesting. Interesting. So, um, hysteria was actually in the original DSM, and I could not find a single thing about what that actually meant. But now, hmm. Lauren, what's the number one thing that you hear about the Victorian treatment of hysteria? <sighs> Victorian treatment. Um, I'm trying to remember. It's something weird. It's something really weird. I can't remember. What is it? So, it is commonly believed that the in the Victorian age, the treatment would involve a doctor giving a woman a manual pelvic massage until she reached hysterical paradoxism, which basically meant an orgasm. So, people commonly believe that doctors would... Um, pleasure 
female patients to cure hysteria. Oh, God. And allegedly, the vibrator was created because doctors were so tired of having to use their hands. Um, That's hilarious. This is controversial, though. This is commonly believed there was a movie about it. However, there is not a single, from what I could find, historical document that actually indicates that that was a accepted medical treatment for it. Um, well, and, and all, like, I hate, like, being this person, but, like, it always kind of comes back to, like, consent. Like, are these people, like, consenting to that experience? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But the thing is, there's no evidence that it ever happens. Oh, okay. Like, it's literally a thing that, like, people say all the time, and if you find some blogs about Victorian time, there is one book about, like, the history of orgasms and vibrators that does talk about it. However, and this is, I think, something that I'd like to point out in the research article about women in hysteria, it's regularly mentioned that they thought getting married and having sex with your spouse was the treatment. It never indicates that a doctor would do it. It indicates a doctor told you to get married. Um, And also, Freud was writing about hysteria at the time and never mentioned that treatment as a commonly accepted treatment. And I kind of feel like if causing orgasms in women was what doctors were doing, I personally feel like Freud would have mentioned it heavily. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'd hope so. Right, and so it's just, it is an interesting thing, is that it's commonly stated, but there's really not, I think, enough evidence to conclusively say that that's what, how they actually treated it. That doesn't mean there weren't doctors who did it. It just means that there's literally not enough evidence either way. So I've heard that parroted a bunch. I just can't say that it's true. Um, Because again, like if you look at a lot of the historical records, it, it doesn't say, and there's a lot of information out there about Victorian treatment of illness and that is not listed. So while it could have happened, it doesn't seem like that was a widely accepted treatment. Um, I also, just for significant research purposes, uh, so the vibrator was actually created for medical purposes, but if you look through um, all of the different, like, ads that they had about the treatments, about the illnesses that a vibrator would cure, hysteria is not listed. What was it supposed to cure? Headaches. Oh, I guess. Muscle aches. So it looks like it was basically um, like the first kind of medical vibrators that were created were more like those pressure point guns that they sell for like massages. Oh. And then it looks like so it started out as a massage thing and then the technology was shifted probably because, you know, people were like, hey, I wonder if this would work for this. And it did. So it kind of shifted the use. Right. But. I mean, you know, like those old catalogs that your mom used to get in the 90s that would always be like personal massager for back. And you're like, that is not for your back. Right. Still advertise it. Right. But like in the advertisements, they list it as a cure for headaches, allergies, like all of this other stuff. Uh, Muscle aches, sore back, indigestion. And they just do not mention hysteria in the advertisements as an illness that it could cure. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know how that would work for allergies, um, but headaches, I sure. Headaches. I think you were supposed to like vibrate your sinuses. Oh. And like massage your sinuses with it, so it would like drain your sinuses and help with allergies. It's oh. kind of like you find them and they're like putting it all over their face and like heartburn. They like put it here. Oh. Um, so it is interesting, and that's one that I always heard as well. But it doesn't. It doesn't look like there's a lot of accurate medical sources. Uh, so we can't say for sure it didn't happen. Um, cause again, like, if you put it like Lauren said was the consent, I mean, were doctors sexually abusing patients in the, while saying it was medical treatment? Yes, probably. We've had recent cases of that happening. Larry Nasser, right, a medical doctor saying that a pelvic massage was the appropriate treatment when it wasn't. So it is something that absolutely does happen and probably did happen then. However, there's kind of this stereotype that most doctors did that to create hysteria and that women were going to the doctor for the hysteria five times a week and all of these other things that I know I've heard. They made a movie about it that really popularized the theory. What movie? Um, I think it was just called Hysteria. Oh, okay. Let me, let me double check that. Um... Yeah, so, um, yeah, it was a movie called Hysteria. It was a comedy rom- it was a rom-com, came out in 2011, saying, Two doctors, Hugh Dancy and Jonathan Price, in Victorian England, use manual stimulation of female genitalia to cure their patients' ills, leading to the invention of the vibrator. Um, it- And the thing is, I remember it being a- decent movie. I did see it. I think it's just, like, this movie. If you look at the true story, it's it's based on true medical events. I Maybe. It's just one of those things that, like, you know, um, okay, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's the tricky thing, is that, like, I've, I've heard both that it is kind of what happened. Um, even the articles on the movie itself indicate that the um, first thing that kind of later was a vibrator was only marketed for muscle massage in men and was not marketed towards women at all. Some places are saying that as early as 1 AD, they realized that pelvic massage cured hysteria. And it's just tricky because in terms of like, good historical sources there's just not a lot that say it there's a lot of blogs and like random articles by like the guardian that say it it's just one that i've heard pretty equally that it's true and not true and i think there's just not enough evidence to definitively say that it happened hmm very interesting interesting stuff yeah so that is a bit about some bizarre treatments for psychological illnesses throughout time. Very weird. Very, very weird. Yeah, well that was very interesting. And I'm mm-hmm. I'm sure there's tons out there that we haven't covered. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's always interesting to like revisit it and be like, oh yeah, this was like what they did back in the day. Yeah. We could have uh, 
could do like 14 different episodes on this. There's a lot out there. We just kind of picked a few. Yeep, 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 yeep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so thanks for listening in, guys. Um, Megan, did you have any good shit that you wanted to share this week? Yeah, uh, my good shit is just excited. My sister's in town. Oh, she so is? So I actually, yeah, now that everyone's fully vaccinated, I get to see my sister. I'm going to see her today. My sister and her husband and my nephew, and I'm very excited. So this will have already happened uh, by the time this gets released. But my sister listened, so hey, Kate, excited to see you. Shout out to Kate. Shout out to Kate. What about you? Um, I think... In terms of good shit, let's see. I mean, I'll keep it simple. I'm just like very grateful for air conditioning right now. It's been Perfect. so freaking hot. <laughs> like it has, yeah. It's not enjoyable. Yeah, I don't know where you guys are in the world, but in Illinois, it's been hot. But I also am very happy because I haven't seen any cicadas and they freak me out. So I am grateful for that as well. I did not know that you were freaked out by cicadas. I am freaked out by cicadas. Like, I realize I can't hurt you or do anything, but like, they're just so ugly and loud. Yeah. That's okay. I'm scared of a lot of things. So absolutely no judgment on cicadas yeah so not about it especially because where i live like there's like trees everywhere i was just like oh my god it's gonna be covered in cicadas but we haven't seen any so Mm, good yeah good stuff well that's all we got for today so thanks for staying spooky yes thank you bye bye